And because of that, sin enters this world. And uh, everything broke. Our relationships broke. Our, our connection with God broke. Our emotions broke. Our reasons broke. Our bodies broke. Everything broke. Because what winds up happening is because Adam and Eve sinned, what winds up happening is every human being is born with a sinful nature. They are born spiritually dead apart from God. But what winds up happening in that story is that God promises that God that he will send someone to come and save us. To save us from the sin, to save us from the evil, to save us from what goes on. And then we fast forward to about 2,000 years ago where God sends an angel to a young woman named Mary and tells her that the child that she carries is going to be that savior. So after they sort all that stuff out, and Mary tells Joseph, and they, they kind of get on board, and they kind of get on the same page, something interesting happens in the story. In those days, you'll read this in Luke chapter 2, verse 1 to 4, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration where Cornelius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered to his hometown. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was the house and lineage of David. Okay? So they sorted out, oh, Jesus is coming in the world, Mary's pregnant, and they wound up having to take a trip to their hometown of Bethlehem due to a, a census. Well, years later, after Jesus is born, you know the story, is wise men come seeking Jesus. And they come from the east. And they wind up, in, uh, they wind up meeting Herod. And they go into Herod and Herod's uh, palace, and they just ask this simple question. Where's Jesus? Where's the one being born king of the Jews? And so Herod gets the scribes together, he gets the pastors and the theologians together and to answer this question, and they go, that's an easy one. They told him that he was going to be born in where? Bethlehem of Judea. Okay. And why I bring this up is because it seems to me that when you look at Scripture, um, what you start realizing is the Bible gives a lot of attention to the place where Jesus is born. Okay? And like it always is mentioning that, and I don't know if you caught it, but we sung like at least three songs that mentioned Bethlehem. So there seems to be this overemphasis on where Jesus was born. And when I read it, when I read the text, the question that comes to my mind the most often is, does it really matter where Jesus was born? Like, why is it so important to tell us where, he's, where he was born? Does it matter at all? Does it have any sort of importance on your life? And if you were like me, the truth is, is you don't actually think that actually has a lot of bearing on my relationship with God and your relationship with God. It's not significant at all. It's just kind of there. It's kind of like, okay, he was born in Bethlehem, and that's, that's the way it is, and, you know, next thing I would move on. But I want to say to you that I would say to you is that Bethlehem, the fact that Jesus is particularly born in the place of Bethlehem, has profound 
repercussions and practical insights for how do you and I relate to God. It does matter where he was born, and it matters individually to you and I today. So the question that I'm going to ask today, and I know it sounds a little weird, you might be saying, is why is Bethlehem so important in the Christmas story? Why Bethlehem and not Rome? Why Bethlehem and not Jerusalem? And you might be actually sitting there going, okay, this is going to be a boring sermon. But I promise you, there is going to be a practical application for it at the end if you listen to me. So, why Bethlehem? Well, uh, the reason is, is the location of Jesus' birth teaches us two important facts about God. And I'm going to share with you what they am as, as we go around. But first, I want to ask this question, and the question is this is when the wise men go and they ask the question, where is Jesus? And the scribes and the theologians say that Jesus will be in Bethlehem. The question I want to ask is, how do they know to tell the wise men where to look? Well, the reason they know where they looked is because it says that a prophet told them. It says this in uh, Matthew chapter 2, verse 5. This being the scribes and Pharisees, they told him that they will he will be born in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. What prophet are they talking about? Well, specifically, they are talking about a prophet that came 750 years before Jesus was born, and the prophet Micah. And so, if you haven't turned to your Bibles, I would love you for, to read those stories, uh, to, to look at the book of Micah. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about Micah and why Bethlehem, why he mentions Bethlehem and why it's important. So, just so you know, uh, Bethlehem, uh, Micah is an Old Testament prophet. And just so you know where it is in the story... He lives uh, during the time when Israel is still a nation country. So if you've been here all, all Christmas or all fall, you know that we've been looking through the book of Esther. And Esther takes place in the season of Israel's history where they invaded and taken over and dispersed and they're no longer their own sovereign nation. Israel still exists, but it's kind of under the control of uh, places like Babylon and Persia and all that. And that's sort of where we've been uh, for the fall. This story, Micah's life, takes place in a season of Israel's history where they are still sovereign over their own borders. But what has happened is nation, Israel has divided into two separate countries. What, does anyone know what those countries are called? Bible buffs, come on. Israel and Judah. They're their own separate nations. And uh, from a spiritual point, they're not doing too well. But from an economic point, this is probably uh, Israel's best time in history, or one of the closest times in history. They are doing really, 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 really well economically. I mean, you got to think about this. Like, the oil's flowing. Yeah, everyone's getting a check from Ralph Klein. Uh, McDonald's is paying you $30 an hour to work and you know that kind of era there's there's no carbon tax yet right there's none of that it's this great economic boom for the place of Israel 
And what winds up happening specifically is like Michael, Micah as a prophet, he saw a vibrant, wealthy class of people who were becoming rich at the expense of the poor in Israel. So it wasn't like they were uh, making their money by uh, legitimate means. What they were doing is they were doing things like not paying their workers and you know forcing, the, they were uh, ballooning the prices to exorbitant amounts. And so what Micah is, is Micah is actually a book that speaks to that issue over the people of Israel. And in the book, he sees two distinct dreams. The first is, is that he sees a vision of ruin. And very specifically, I'm gonna, I'll, 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 I'll let you see it here. It says, uh, what he says is, he says, listen, if you keep this kind of oppression up, if the rich get richer at the expense of mistreating the poor, then this is what God is going to do. Number one, he's going to send the country of Assyria to wipe out the country of Israel, and then later he's going to send the, con- the country of Babylon to wipe out Judah. Did that happen? Yes. If you've been in church long enough, you should know that we've been parking on that for a little bit. So this is happening before that. And he says, listen, if you do not do this, there will be ruin. It's actually, uh, and he says it in a very poetic way. Uh, Micah chapter 1, verse 6 says, Therefore I will make Samaria a heap in the open, go- in the open country, a place of, for planting vineyards, and I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire. And all her idols I will lay waste, for whom the fee of a prostitute she gathered them. And to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. And so here's what winds up happening. is the first, maybe two chapters of Micah. is a book about how sin brings ruin to the people of Israel. How God is going to destroy it. However, he sees another vision. And in that second vision, it's one of renewal where God won't let it stay ruined. So you got to picture this, okay? People of God, they're doing really well economically. They're getting rich, but they're getting rich off the evil and sin that they're doing. God sends Micah, this prophet, to say, hey, if you don't repent of this, it's going to destroy you. It's going to ruin you. And it's just going to decimate the city to it's nothing. And then what winds up happening is, and then he says, but I'm not going to let it stay that way. I'm going to bring a season of renewal. And here's what I want you to to see. I'm just summarizing this. Is Micah saw a vision, a future vision, of Jesus taking what was ruined, taking what was destroyed, taking what sin had made desolate and restoring it. Listen to what it says. This is Micah chapter 4, verse 2 to 6. For out of Zion shall go forth from the law the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and he shall decide between Disputes of strong nations far away, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, neither will they learn war anymore, but they shall sit 
every man on, under his own vine and in, under his own fig tree. And no one shall make them be afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of house is spoken. For all the peoples walk in each of the, the names of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ forever. So what he's saying is, listen, there's going to be a Savior. There's going to be someone that's going to take the desolation and ruin and restore it. And this is like one of my favorite verses in Scripture, bar none, about Jesus. It says this in verse 6 and 7, talking about Jesus. In that day, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and afflicted. And the lame I will make the remnant and those who were cast off a strong nation. And the Lord will reign forever with them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. That's speaking about Jesus. It's speaking about the day that Jesus comes. That Jesus is going to take everything and he's going to make everything right, or sorry, everything wrong right again. He's going to bring restoration from ruin. And then he goes on to say, well, how will you know that that Messiah has come? How will you know it's there? In chapter 5, it tells us, But are you, O Bethlehem Ephrath, who were far too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me one who is to be ruler in all Israel, whose coming forth is from old and from ancient of days. That's what was quoted to the wise men in the Christmas story. So that's where he says, hey, where the wise men are like, hey, we, we need to know where Jesus is. We need to know where the Savior is. And they go, well, he's in Bethlehem. Why do we know he's in Bethlehem? Because Micah told us he was in Bethlehem. Here's what I want you to observe, the main observation for today. If you would like to write this down, I, I would encourage you to do that. The big takeaway that I want you to understand is that God uses a small town in his big plan to save the world. Let me say that again. God used a small town in his big plan to save the world. And you might be like, okay, what does that have to do with me, you and me? Well, the answer is this. Bethlehem's contribution to the Christmas story teaches, two, teaches us two crucial facts about God that I'm not sure that many of us have actually thought of when we think of uh, Bethlehem. And I'm going to share it with you today because I think it makes it very important that, about what we're going to do today. First of all, Bethlehem's role in the Christmas story tells us that, uh, I'm sorry, uh, let me repeat this. First of all, Bethlehem's role in the Christmas tell, story tells us that God makes it clear where to look for Jesus. Let me say that again. Bethlehem's role in the story makes it obvious and sort of like painstakingly simple and clear and that where Jesus is, Bethlehem acted as a sign. And that's, here's why that's so important. Because it teaches us that Jesus isn't a life-size version of Where's Waldo. How many of you have ever in your entire life 
been exposed to those where wallows but growing up, right? You know the story. You know what I'm talking about. If you if you don't know what I'm talking about, there are these like picture books around a character named Waldo who dresses as red and white, and basically it's they are pictures where you got to find exactly where Waldo is, right? So he's there, and he's somewhere in the picture, and you got to spend your time finding him and looking for him. Friends, Jesus isn't like that. Jesus, here's what I mean by that. God doesn't create a way to help you, doesn't create a way to save you, and then particularly hide it from you. He makes the solution to your problems clear and obvious. And Bethlehem was acting as a sign. It's you saying, hey, God says through Micah, hey, I have a solution to all your brokenness, all your shame, all the way, all the stresses of your life, all the regrets that you have. I'm going to make it right. I'm going to save you. And everyone's like, that's awesome. How do we know that that's happened? And he's like, here's how you know. It's going to be in Bethlehem. Bethlehem is this big sign with arrows that says, this is the guy. You've got to pay attention to it. Hey? Jesus makes it clear where to find him. Because Bethlehem acts as a sign, he's making it clear to the wise men where to find Jesus. And I would submit that, that makes it, that's true for you and I as well. God makes it clear and obvious where to find your help. And all you've got to do is do the same thing as the wise men did. You just have to ask the question, where's Jesus? And he will answer you. I promise you, listen to what the Bible says about this. He's not hiding a way out from you. Some religions, here's why I think that Jesus is superior to all other religions and all other forms of spirituality. A lot of religions will try to hide the solution from you. Think about Scientology for a minute. We have your answer to your problem. We know where the Savior is. Great, tell me where the Savior is. You gotta give me the money. Jesus doesn't do that. Or, I don't know if you've had this experience. I had a lot of new age friends in high school growing up and they talked really weird. Have you ever met a new age friend that talks really weird? They talk in spiritual language, but it just seems like a bunch of mumbo jumbo, right? Making you purposely beg, how do you find the solution? Jesus doesn't do that. All you have to do, all Bethlehem teaches us, is that because it's a sign, Jesus want, or God wants to make it clear to you where to find your help, where to find your rescue, or you should say, who you can go to help. He wants to make that clear to you. He's not making it weird or, or uh, uh, <clears throat> hard for you to understand what direction that you need to go in for your help, and that's the person of Jesus. And I guarantee you, if you're going through your life right now, and you're in a space in your life where your life's a mess, where it's lonely during the Christmas time, where you've lost a loved one, where the money's too high, and you're stressing out, and then there's a whole bunch of relational trauma, and there's brokenness, and there's sin, and you're crying out, and you're going, God, where are you? I promise you, the answer is obvious. It's in Jesus himself. Listen to what the scripture says about this. It says in Jeremiah 29, 13, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. That's a promise from God. 
Matthew chapter 7, verse 7 says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. If you're looking for the way out, if you're looking for a Savior and you ask him, where's that Savior? It will, God will make the answer obvious to you. It's in the person of Jesus Christ. Because Bethlehem was chosen, sorry, let, let me go back because of that. I really want you to understand that. God makes the way out obvious for you and me. There's no hoops you got to jump through. There's no secret seance you've got to do. There's no special enlightenment that you have some sort of special knowledge. The answer is plain and simple. And Bethlehem acts as a sign to make it obvious about where to find your help. And that's in the person of Jesus Christ. Bethlehem acts as a sign. My favorite verse, I don't know you guys, I don't know, this is kind of a little bit of a joke. Do you guys go know what God's phone number is? God has a phone number. Have you heard of it? It's Jeremiah 33, 3. Call to me and I will answer you. Oh, come on, that's funny. <laughs> Yay. I'm trying to tell you that if you ask for help, he's going to make it obvious where to find the help. Second observation about Bethlehem is this. Because Bethlehem was chosen because it was the least among the tribes of Israel, it shows that God can carry out his largest works through the least of us. I want you to look at the text again real carefully. It says this in Micah chapter 5 verse 2. This being prophesying of Jesus' birthplace, it says, O you, O Bethlehem, Ephrath, you are what? Too little to be among the clans of Judah. You are small. You're insignificant. You're bigger fish to fry. But from you shall come forth from me one who's to be the ruler of all Israel. That's Jesus. Bethlehem, I don't know if you know this, it might have was a small town, and it might it might have been small, but throughout the Bible it packed a serious punch. I want to list you all the ways that God used Bethlehem really briefly in the Bible. First of all, Bethlehem is currently where Rachel is buried. We hear this all the way back in Genesis chapter 35, verse 19. You know the story of Abraham? He has a uh, or story, uh, story of the people of Israel being born and established. Is, Rachel's tomb is currently in Bethlehem. Number two, it was a strategic uh, place in the book of Judges, particularly in the Civil War happening at the end of the book. Number three, uh, Bethlehem is where the story of Ruth takes place, which are the great relatives of King David, whom Jesus' lineage comes through. Bethlehem is also the place where David is anointed king over all of Israel. Listen to 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over all Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go, and I'm going to send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king from among his sons. And lastly, it's the place where Jesus was born. I want you to catch this. God uses a small town in his big plan to save the world. Such great activity for a small town. 
Jesus was not to be born in Jerusalem or Rome or New York or Vancouver or Calgary or Edmonton or whatever city you think is the best place in the world. Jesus was to be born in Bethlehem, the place where the lame and the castoffs were given provision and hope comes and was birthed in a small town. This is why it's so important for you and I to understand. Bethlehem assaults all those who think that they are great in their own eyes and humbles them before the greatness of our king. You know what that tells me in this story? God can use anyone he wants to. Small people and insignificant people can do meaningful things. God can use the smallest people and places to do his biggest works. It's not how important you are. It's not how big or small you are. It's how big our God is. And Bethlehem tells us that God will not overlook us in his grand plan of our salvation because we are the last, the least, or the little. God can use small places and small people to do great things for God. And I actually think that this is a lesson that all rural churches need to own really well. A, a little bit, uh, about two weeks ago, I had the amazing privilege of going to a rural church conference. Have you ever heard of these? Right? Well, you know, if you go to a church conferences today, most of them are put on by big churches, right? Uh, but this one in particular was hosted at Prairie, and it was, ho- and it was for small churches, so churches under, under 100, rural churches, churches like you and me. And there were about 30 to 35 uh, board members and pastors there from all over central Alberta. And it was a great, encouraging time. And I remember uh, when they did this exercise, and they did this thing where they, where they took these, uh, they did kind of a positive and negative thing. They said, okay, tell me everything amazing about small church ministry. Tell me everything that is all the strengths of a small church. Tell me what's so great about it. And so everyone listed it and it was great. And then it was awesome and everyone was encouraged. And then they did the opposite thing and they said, uh, tell me everything that's hard or what, what are the weak spots about having a small church in a rural community. And so they listed them. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Can you guess what they were? Anyone want to take a guess what the number one weakest point of a rural church was? Getting people to do things? Yeah. Okay, that might be one. Anyone else? Anyone else? It's, it's, it's an illustration for the text <laughs> to give you a hint. We're too small. That's right. There was a guy, they, they did this on the board, they had this whiteboard, and he said, okay, I want you to call out everything. And so people wrote exactly things like this. Well, we don't have enough people, or we don't have enough talent in a bigger church, or you know, things like uh, all our young people are leaving or, you know, the, you know, we don't have enough money to meet the budget and all this kind of thing, right? But then someone popped up, some pastor, I think it was, some, I can't remember, somewhere in central Alberta, and he said this, the number one thing that discourages me in rural ministry is when my people say we're just a small church. Kills me. And when he said that, I don't know if you have an amen for the negative, but that's what happened in the entire room. 30 board members, 30 pastors, when he said that, went, hmm, speak. 
And it seemed to me that out of everything that was a drain for a pastor, the pa- the budget, getting people to volunteer, losing our people to bigger and better churches, all that kind of thing, the number one thing that destroyed a pastor's heart was not any of that, but this attitude that because we are a small church, we are insignificant. And yet when you read the text, God's best work came out of a small people. I think we got to ban that saying in church. And I think you have to ban that saying in your own life. God can use anyone he wants, big or small. And I want you to realize that in this text this morning, it is saying that God uses small people and insignificant people to do meaningful things. Don't let the fact that you are the least, the last, or the little stop you from, or believing that make you think that God has forgotten about you in some way. That you cannot be used in some meaningful way. It's not about our size, it's about the size of our God. It's not about how many, it's not about how big the church is, it's about how big the gospel is inside of the church. And God can use us to do meaningful things. Just like he used a small town in Judea, not only to bring about the savior of the world, to be, be a critical staging ground, for events throughout the entire Bible. Now, I think that's a version of Christmas we're celebrating, don't you? So, <clears throat> I'm just going to wrap up and I'll leave it at that. I'm going to give you three reasons so far that you have to celebrate Christmas. Number one, we read Revelation 12 last week, and we learned from there that Jesus, through the Christmas story and dying on the cross for the sin has thrown down the great accuser of brethren. And because of that, there is no shame or guilt in any more. Romans 8 tells us that therefore there is no for those who trust in Jesus Christ. That's reason number one you have to celebrate Christmas. There's no shame and guilt anymore. There's no condemnation. Number two, because Bethlehem acts as a sign... He is making it clear to the wise men where to find Jesus. And I would say the same thing is true of you. God is making it clear where to find help, salvation, and rescue. He's not hiding help. He's not keeping a way out from you. He's giving you an obvious answer. And number three, God uses the least among us to accomplish his largest wins. Micah chapter 2, verse 5. So, if you're feeling blue this Christmas, if you're not feeling like, why should I celebrate Christmas because it's so stressful, those are your three answers. And so, the application of this, I'm going to give you an application. You ready for this? You should come to the hymn sing tonight. Okay? So we should celebrate the fact that we're saved, the fact that there is no condemnation, the fact that Jesus wants to make it clear to us where to help and find salvation, and the fact that he uses the last, the lost, and the least among us in his grand plan.
Let's uh, let's end the service with one more song. <laughs>